Uh, we are currently in a series going verse by verse through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 4, verse 15. Uh, that's about 80% of the way through your Bibles if you're new to Scripture. Uh, and we'll pick up there in a moment. We are picking up this morning in the middle of a narrative in which Jesus is in Samaria, which is enemy territory, and he is talking with a Samaritan woman, which was very taboo. Uh, but what he's talking with her about is his true identity and the offer of living water. So if you were here last Sunday, we talked about the reality of what is this living water that Jesus is talking about. And now we're picking up again right in the middle of the conversation with her response. Uh, this is John 4, verse 15. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Uh, which is a bit ironic, but it's also a beautiful response on her part. In fact, I would argue this should be our heart posture as followers of Jesus. Uh, but then this is Jesus' unusual response to her. Verse 16, he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning uh, like the Samaritans who, who were streaming out of that village. Lord, hungry, uh, curious, uh, thirsty, recognizing as we come into this place and encounter you, wow, you really are the Savior of the world. Lord, I pray this morning as we uh, unpack these verses together that you would be magnified, that you would draw near. And I was just thinking of the beauty of all of the the babies that we have around right now and the fact that you uh, compare your people to uh, a nursing baby. That it's something that's that close, that's that intimate, that we're, we're, we receive our life from you and, and you're not far away. You're, you're very near. And so I, I pray uh, that we would sense your presence as you draw near to us this morning and that you would speak to us, Lord, that nothing would keep you from whispering to each person who is here about our identity and our calling and our gifting, our role uh, in the body of Christ, our role in the world that you've created. God, you've created us with a certain uh, with plan and thought in mind. Would you um, reveal that to us this morning as we look at these words? In Jesus' name, amen. On his way from Jerusalem, uh, north and down toward Galilee, Jesus finds himself in an unusual place talking to an unusual person. Uh, Here he is in Samaria, in enemy territory, talking to a Samaritan woman of all people, uh, which is probably the last person on earth that he should be talking to. Uh, There were strict cultural boundaries in place that made this a very unlikely conversation. First off, she's a Samaritan, And there's a strict divide between Jews and non-Jewish people and the rest of the world. Now, ethnically, Samaritans are actually half Jewish, but essentially they remain Gentiles and sort of subhuman in the eyes of many Jews. So there's a strict divide that way. You don't talk to Samaritans and Gentiles. Uh, There's also in their world sort of a a hyper-conservative split between male and female that is difficult for us to grasp. So even in a community that's entirely Jewish, if you were to go to the temple or to the synagogue, men and women would actually be seated separately in different areas of the temple or the synagogue and would not associate with one another uh, in that context. So throughout the fabric of their culture, there's a male-female divide. Uh, And thirdly, she's not exactly a shining example of morality. If you're sort of a, a pious Uh, holy Jewish person seeking after the Lord. Now there's a third barrier in line because she's living a very uh, broken, sinful lifestyle that even most Samaritans would sort of scoff at. And and some of that is actually evident from the text. Uh, Most scholars are quick to point out that the woman is coming to the well at noon, which doesn't really mean much to us, but in context... Uh, the women would often go to dwell, uh, dr- pull water from the well, 
early in the morning when the air is cool as a community. So they might go in one large group or in little groups with their friends and go out at the start of the day to draw water. This woman is coming at noon and in a dry, arid climate in the heat of the day. She's coming in the, in the very moment when she is least likely to encounter anyone else from her village. So there's a sense in which you could almost read into that and assume that she's been sort of marginalized within her community, or at the very least, she has chosen to self-isolate in shame. She said, no, I, I don't want to see anyone else or be part of the rest of the community. Uh, I'm not fit to do that. Uh, and so this uh, woman is really kind of near the bottom of the barrel in terms of even the, the, if you consider the broad swath of people that Jesus could possibly interact with within his world. Picture his geographical reach, the different ethnic groups represented, the trade routes through the Roman Empire. Who could he have possibly interacted with? This woman is near the bottom. And in fact, there's a strong argument to be made that even Jewish tax collectors and Jewish prostitutes would have enjoyed a higher status socially than this woman has. So this is a significant moment that, that Jesus is connecting with, talking with this woman. Uh, but not only does he talk with her, he essentially welcomes her in and activates her as arguably the first missionary ever to be sent out by Jesus with incredible results. And I would argue that this moment is one that uh, continues to shape us today. Many of you know that we're part of a global family of churches called Regions Beyond. And the name, Regions Beyond, is actually derived from a, a verse in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, quote, Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, in, uh, in fresh places to unreached people groups. And within that sort of global apostolic family and vision, one of the values of regions beyond is that, quote, the poor are our partners, not a project. And when we first joined this global family shortly after planting the church, this is one of the things that struck me as absolutely biblical and refreshing. We send people out to unreached people groups, but the second someone is reached from an unreached people group, uh, they become an equal brother and sister on level playing field with the rest of the global family. And many of the unreached people in the world, something like 70% of all unreached people uh, are poor, meaning they probably live off of a dollar a day or less. So as we think about how do we reach unreached people groups in the world, a lot of them will fall into this class of the global poor. Uh, but when we reach them, uh, it change, as soon as they surrender and give their lives to Jesus, they're brought into a global family uh, that, that should look and feel different than anything that they've experienced before. Uh, Psalm 113 says it this way. It, said, it says, God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. 
And that's one of our values as a global family of churches. In fact, one of my favorite examples of this is a woman named Topsy McQuena uh, from South Africa. And I think we have a picture of her uh, with one of her friends. Topsy is the one on the right-hand side there. And Topsy lives in a town called Clarence in the middle of South Africa. And there's regions beyond church there in her town, which by our standards is a very poor place. Uh, But her husband ended up getting connected to the regions beyond church in their town. And he gave his life to Jesus. Uh, The problem was that before that, Topsy and her husband and their family had been involved in ancestral worship, which is a big deal in Africa. So when Topsy's husband gave his life to Jesus, Topsy was not pleased. In her mind, he was uh, betraying the ancestors, deserting the ancestors, which are very real, powerful, present spirits there in their culture. And so as a result, Topsy told her husband that she was going to withhold certain marital rights from him indefinitely. And on top of that, that she was not even going to cook food for him until he renounced Jesus. Okay, so she's very upset by what has happened. But her husband, instead of responding in anger or defensiveness, uh, it it responded with gentleness and love and and sort of just decided, I'm just going to bear this lovingly and continue to love my wife and love my family. And his response was so shocking to Topsy that she actually became curious about Jesus. And so she started to draw near, and she started attending this Regions Beyond Church, and then she gave her life to Jesus. And in the process, in the months that followed that decision, became really clear that God just had his hand on Topsy's life. It became clear, wow, this woman, she has something, like God has gifted her, and she's going to be a significant woman for the sake of the kingdom of God. And and so she continued to grow and develop. She was actually brought on staff at the church, which which is an incredible, fruitful thing, both for the church community and for Topsy. And uh, later on, when Regions Beyond did a conference in Australia for the Australian Regions Beyond churches there, Topsy McQuena flew from South Africa over to Australia to speak at the conference on our uh, global value of embracing and empowering the poor. And I wasn't there at that conference, but I heard that she blew it out of the water, that people were just floored uh, by this woman and what she had to share. Uh, And in fact, uh, several years ago, my wife, this is pre-COVID, my wife and I got to go to a Regions Beyond conference in Greece And there's people there from all over our global family of churches, from like 40 different nations or something like that. We're all coming together in one place uh, to seek the Lord together. And at one point during one of our worship sessions, Topsy McQuena stood up and led hundreds of us in a South African worship song that's called Jesu Pakema, or Jesus Be Exalted in her native African language. And so you have to imagine like 300 plus people from 40 different nations all coming together as equals as brothers and sisters to seek the Lord with Topsy McQuena leading us on stage. And I tell you what, I was weeping. It was so powerful. 
Like that place was just electric in that moment as we were singing along with her and seeking the Lord. I've never experienced anything quite like that before. But the, the beautiful part about that is that Topsy McQuena went from living in abject poverty, sometimes eating one meal every other day, to then all of a sudden being a co-equal partner in a global family of churches, encouraging brothers and sisters from all over the world. And in the words of Psalm 113, God took her from the ashes and seated her among princes. And that's a beautiful thing. But I think moments like these and stories like these can actually be traced all the way back to this moment and this story where Jesus is at a well in Samaria, crossing every cultural boundary, talking to the person that he has no business talking to, inviting her into the story of God, activating her for the sake of the kingdom. Kind of culturally, socially speaking, this woman at the well in Samaria is not unlike Topsy McQuenna or millions of others who are sort of the poorest of the poor, in a sense, out on the margins. And I doubt this woman at the well is very well off financially either, based on her story and her history. But Jesus saw something in her that she did not see in herself. And and he was able to call that out and draw her in and activate her for the sake of the kingdom of God. And notice that in this story, Jesus activates her in the same way that the church is meant to activate people. First off, as the church, we are meant to go and connect with people who aren't like us. Maybe people who seem far away. We're meant to cross some of those boundaries, whether uh, they're living in the Garland District or people we know in the public school systems or they're in the cubicle uh, down the hall from us. Some are much further away. Uh, Three weeks ago, we prayed over Bo as he uh, left to go to Nepal and work among unreached people groups in the Himalayan mountains, literally in the regions beyond us, in some distant corner of the globe. Uh, but regardless of where we find ourselves, at the, the water cooler, at work, at a well in Samaria, uh, whatever it is, we, we are called to connect with others and invite them unexpectedly into the story of God. And some people will say yes, and some people will say no. But those who say yes and draw near actually begin to be knit into a biblical community And when you're knit into a biblical community, God's intent is that in that place, you should be activated and built up and released for the sake of the kingdom of God. The Bible says, Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God 
and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And for me, this is it. Like this is church. This is the the biblical model for what church is supposed to look like. Everyone is functioning in their gifts, building one another up, up into the fullness of who they are in God, and we're equipping one another for works of service. Or ministry is another way to translate that. Here, out in the community, in Nepal, wherever that manifests itself for you. This is not just my job as a teacher. This is your job. This is our job as a community. As a disciple who is part of a biblical community, it is your job to ask, what are my gifts and how can I use those gifts to build up the body, to build up those around me? This is our calling. (laughs) This is how we carry on the mission of God in the world. And I would argue that in this passage, Jesus is actually living out all of these gifts. First off, uh, Jesus is acting as an evangelist. He's reaching out. He's reaching a lost person, building with them relationally, uh, sharing the good news of the gospel. Second, Jesus is acting as the prophet. He's speaking prophetically into her life. This is what's true of you. I have insight into who you are and even where you've been based on the Holy Spirit working within me. Uh, As the teacher, he's teaching her about worship and the Spirit and the Messiah and living water and helping her understand and grow in her knowledge. Uh, As a pastor, he's shepherding her heart toward healing and acceptance in Christ. Hey, you've come from this broken place, but I don't condemn you. I'm actually here to accept you, to commission you, to activate you, to encourage you. And as the apostle, he's activating her for the mission of God and sending her out to an unreached people group. So all of these things that we read about in scripture, hey, God has given these things to the church in the form of gifts given to individual people, all of those things are found in Jesus. He's taking himself and distributing himself through the Holy Spirit into the church so that as a community, we begin to embody him holistically. As all of us are coming alive in our individual gifts, we get a composite picture of who Jesus is. And and the church begins to come alive. So here's the invitation as we close. Uh, First, as a church community, uh, we are committed to blessing and connecting and reaching new people for Jesus. That isn't always easy. Some of us have a lot of fear to overcome in that or sort out with God in the process and say, God, how do you want me to do that and to manifest that, that in my life? but we're all called to do that here in Spokane and to the ends of the earth. It's both. Uh, Second, uh, we see the poor both here and abroad as partners to be empowered in the gospel, not as projects who are simply the object of our handouts. There are people who are hungry and they just need a meal and Jesus says, feed them. That's great. 
But the long-term goal is actually to see them as brothers and sisters on equal footing, as co-partners in the gospel for the sake of the mission of God. And third, we are committed to coming alive in our gifts. As individual disciples of Jesus, we're saying, I'm committed as I follow you, Jesus, I want to come alive in my gifts. Show me what that looks like. And none of these are easy, but in our post-COVID world, I think that the third value has become particularly difficult for us to embrace. And not us as River's Edge, I mean us as the global church. Essentially, there was this crisis and pandemic, and in the process, it's everything sort of collapsed back down to like the lead pastor or maybe a few people doing everything. And essentially what we, what we get by doing that is sort of an anemic version of the church. It's actually not God's vision. And that is not what we read about in the New Testament. And in, and in some places within the American church in particular, that's just the norm. That's like what we shoot for is our ultimate goal. We're not going to do that. That is not our goal. That, that will not be the culture of this community. So I understand how that happens, and it has happened across, essentially across the world. Some of the most beautiful participatory bodies in that moment of crisis collapsed back down into this emergency model. But, but now is the time for that to begin to open back up again. Like, that's, that's fine if there's a crisis or an emergency, but that is not God's vision for what church should look like. When we open up the pages of the New Testament, it, we see something much more participatory, uh, much more diverse. And, and so if our goal is to equip one another for works of service, uh, to build up the body of Christ, to reach unity and faith and maturity, uh, to grow up in God into our full potential, into all the fullness of Christ, then it requires you to come alive in your gifts. There is no other way. That is the only way that our body as a church will become what it's supposed to become. And I honestly don't care if our church body is 20 or 200. I was going to say 2,000. I actually don't want that. But, but, but you get my point. Like, I, I don't care if we're 20 or 200. What I want is for us to embrace a, a beautiful, biblically inspired, participatory model of church. Uh, but if we don't come alive in our gifts and we don't operate in them, the body will never reach its full potential. You will never experience the fullness of what Christ has for you if the people sitting around you right now don't come alive in their gifts. You are actually strangely dependent on them stepping out and risking in order for you to be full. And vice versa. The people around you will never attain to the fullness of Christ if you bury your gifts. We cannot afford to collapse down to a model where your job as a disciple is to come and sit and listen to a teaching and sing some songs and tithe and go home. That, that won't get the job done. That will not win the world. That will not bring you into fullness. I could stand up here and teach every single Sunday for the next 20 years 
and you will not come into fullness in Christ. You won't. Because that's one person using one gift. You will flatline. You will grow to a certain point and then you will flatline in your faith because the people around you are not operating in their gifts and you are not operating in yours. You will be stunted in your discipleship. You will never fully grow up in God and we will not flourish collectively as we ought to flourish if no one else is operating in their gifts. I believe that as we come out of COVID, in the years that lie ahead, there will be many, many people in our culture who want to give church another chance. Who say, I have no meaning, I have no purpose, the secular means of navigating life are not working, and and I'm searching. I'm starting to get hungry again. I, I wanna give this a try. But the question that has been sort of haunting me this week is when that happens in the years that lie ahead, what sort of church will they encounter when they come? We get to decide that right now. What sort of church will they encounter when they come? Will it be a diverse, participatory, spirit-filled, dynamic expression of biblical community? Or, or, Or will it be what we had so often before? One person... One gift, sit, listen, that's discipleship. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but that will not win the world. It just won't. It it will not allow us to attain fullness in Christ. And I would argue that it's not God's design. But the good news is, that God has given us a better way. So we'll end with this. Uh, I want to create sort of a moment uh, for us to sit and reflect on these questions that we can contemplate. Number one, what are my gifts? And number two, uh, what would it look like to use them to build up the body of Christ? Every single one of you before you were born, when you were an idea in God's mind, he said, I'm going to knit you together in the womb in a certain way with a certain wiring and certain gifts. So there's fresh things that we receive from the Spirit, but every single one of you, you you already have been gifted with something. You've already been wired for something. And we get to discover those things over time and embrace them and share them with others. But as we close, uh, I'll share a few examples Uh, The first one is this. This is a painting from my friend Christine Swanson. And Christine, as the backstory, she was actually bedridden for most of her youth. And she's a high, high extrovert. So this was like a torturous thing, but she was literally stuck in bed for years, if not decades of her life before they could figure out medically what was wrong with her. And in the process, instead of sort of caving to self-pity and despair, Uh, she decided to channel some of that energy into painting. And she learned how to paint. And today, she's one of the most brilliant painters that I know. Beautiful things that she creates. Uh, But this is one of them. She actually painted this years ago when I was preaching uh, back in Portland. She was on stage with me, and in the course of a 30-minute teaching, she painted this. 
and I was uh, teaching from James chapter 3 on the power of the tongue. And so as I was preaching and she was listening, she painted a visual representation of the very thing that I was preaching on. The tongue is like a rudder that steers the whole ship. It has the power to set forests on fire. And ever since she painted it, I've had this hanging on my wall in my office to remind me, hey, teaching matters. Like your words have power. They, they mean something. So if you're called to do this, like take this seriously. And, and it's been a, a great encouragement to me over those years. Hey, is your gift painting? Because if it is, then you should paint. And this right here, this is coffee grounds that Elaine and Ava secure for us every Sunday. Well, not this Sunday, because they're gone, but almost every Sunday. Lane and Ava, they have a gift of service. It's wired into them. I have this gift, I have this capacity to serve, and he's passionate about coffee. I don't know anything about coffee. I do not drink coffee. I don't care about coffee. If the government decided to make it an illegal substance, I wouldn't care, okay? I, I just can't express that enough. If I was the one making the coffee, you would not be pleased, okay? Instead, Lane says, I have a heart to serve. I have a passion for coffee. And he found out that one of our former guitar players who was here at the church for a season is actually now in Portland, Oregon, and he brews coffee. He started his own coffee business, and he makes a really good brew. And so Lane and Ava secure coffee grounds uh, from one of our previous River's Edge attendees in Portland, Oregon, and that's what gets brewed here in the mornings. Like just, just the care, the passion, and almost every single Sunday, they show up early so that they can be here and brew the coffee. Like, do, you, do you have a gift of service? The scriptures say, well, then serve. Like, can you imagine if all of us said, hey, I have a simple gift, but I'm going to put this level of passion and care and detail into the gift that God has given me? Like, oh, what that would do for the body. If I put that care into my teaching and someone else puts that care into hospitality and someone else puts that care into evangelism or apostolic gifting or whatever it is, saying whatever your calling is, if it's to serve, and serve well. This right here is a journal, uh, and it's a special journal for me. The only thing I write down in this journal are prophetic words that people give to me. So this is not for just random thoughts or notes or to-do lists. This journal is different. It's only for prophetic words. And in these pages, I have not dozens, but hundreds of prophetic words that have been given to me, mostly through this body, some of your names and your words are written down in here, but also from our, our global Regions Beyond family as well. And I cannot tell you what an encouragement this has been to me over the years. Uh, this has shaped my sense of calling and identity in profound ways. And, and there have been times when I felt like quitting 
And, and God said, keep going. And there, there have been times when I felt totally ineffective in ministry. And, and God said, I'm proud of you. And, and there have been times I felt like garbage. And, and he said, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Through real people in real time. I'm going to write that down. So hundreds of times in which people have stepped out and risked, taken a risk and just said, hey, as we were praying, I had this on my heart. I think I'm supposed to share it with you. And they did. I, I don't think it's exaggerating to say that I'm in ministry and flourishing there because of prophetic words. If people weren't stepping out and risking and doing that, I wouldn't be here this morning. It's that important. Is your gift prophesying? Scriptures say, then prophesy. Is, is it natural or easy for you to receive from the Lord, to, to get those impressions on your heart and to share them with someone else for their building up and encouragement? If you have the capacity to do that, then do it. That's a gift that God has given you for the building up of the body. In fact, we'll end with this. This is Romans 12 from the New Living Translation. It says, In His grace, God has given different gifts for doing certain things well. I love that language. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, then serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, then be encouraging. If it is giving, then give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take that responsibility seriously. If you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. That's church. That's what biblical community is supposed to look like. So as I look around the room, I, I, I can say, oh, Jenny, you have a prophetic gifting. Like, it just seems so easy for you to receive things from the Lord and speak them out over people and shape the life of our community. If that's your gift, like, run with that. Oh, man, Starkies, you guys are so generous. I wish I was as joyful and, and generous as you are, but keep doing what you're doing because you're building up and encouraging the body. Hannah, you have the gift of encouragement. Man, encourage people. Matt and, and Lauren, you guys have this gift of mercy in, in a way that so few of us in the body have. Man, exercise that gift of mercy. Take this seriously. What, what is your gift? And, and how can you use that gift for the building up of the body. We need teachers and pastors and evangelists and painters and everything in between. What are your gifts? Let's pray.